Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest marketing team, and we're here for another episode of Editors Unedited, and I'm going to let our editor, Emily Griffin, take it away. Hi, this is Emily Griffin. I'm an executive editor at the Harper Division of HarperCollins. Um, I have been in publishing for about 15 years, been here for three years, and I've worked with a fantastic array of authors. Everyone from Anderson Cooper to Liv Constantine to Bryn Chancellor, um, both novelists whose books you really supported in the library market. Um, And I'm so excited to be here today uh, with Mary Adkins, author of When You Read This. It's one of the funniest, sharpest, most moving and human books I've ever read, and it is so inventive because it is told in an epistolary format but rather than using letters Mary uses digital uh, communications whether it's emails blog posts Domino's pizza text alerts Airbnb snooze listings um, and other kind of digital ephemera to tell the story of a young woman whose life is cut off too soon and the two people who kind of come together in her wake. Um, That's the boss at the branding firm where she worked and her sister who's a haute cuisine chef who is completely derailed by the loss. Um, And Mary is here today. She is um, a former lawyer, a graduate of Duke University and Yale Law School, um, and she now works as a story trainer for The Moth and writes and uh, is just a terrific person. So I'm thrilled to be here. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) So as I mentioned, Mary's book has an incredibly innovative format. Um, And so my first question for her, as was my first question the first time I spoke to her on the phone, was how she came up with the germ of the idea for the book. Did she sort of create the epistolary format first um, and then think about the premise and the characters, or did the, pre- did the characters or the plot come to mind first? So Mary, I'm hoping you could uh, enlighten us a little on that. So when I started this novel, I had just left law, and I had only been a lawyer for seven months. Um, I really did not like practicing law, and I, I also had just turned 30, and so I was hobbling together this, this life of writing by freelancing and you know doing what I could to pay my bills. That also allowed myself time to write. And I had this sense that my life was just beginning. Like, I'm like, oh, I finally figured out what I'm supposed to be doing with my days. But if that was true, it was like, what was all of that that just happened? Like, I knew that had also been my life, but it felt sort of like all prelude, like it was all prologue. And so that gave rise to this question of, well, what if, what if that was it? Like, what if that was all I had? Which is sort of a morbid version of the same question. 
But it did sort of bother me in an existential way, and I decided to explore that through Iris, through fiction. So Iris's blog came first, but that felt incomplete because while, of course, her life had meaning, you know, in the sense of what it meant to her, it also had meaning in how she affected other people when she was alive. And so I wanted to explore how her life echoed after she was gone and the lives of these people she had relationships with. That's great. That's so interesting. Um, So one of the things that I loved about reading the book and about reading Iris's blog is how visual it is and how there's these different images throughout. Um, Are you an artist? How did you think of doing that? How did you start creating them? Did you, you know, need help? Uh, How does that work Um, as a words person also uh, incorporating visuals? I'm definitely not an artist. I was when I was a kid, I could I learned how to draw a horse and I would just draw a horse over and over. I, I could still draw I could draw a horse right now. Okay. It would be a pretty good horse. We may hold you to that. <laughs> but that's the only thing I could ever draw. Um yeah, I am fascinated with like how I'm I'm fascinated with how we can tell stories through kind of simple graphics. Like I wouldn't describe myself as an artist, but when I was thinking about answers to this question of how to how does a life have meaning and how do you look back on a life that feels incomplete and find meaning in it I noticed that thoughts were coming to me as very visual expressions like dots and layers and arcs and lines and um and overlapping and and it's so it it kind of happened organically that way like these are illustrations seem to kind of capture this more than words did yeah. So I just leaned into that and started playing around. Very cool. Um, so epistolary, obviously there's the visual element, which ultimately is probably less than 5% of the book, um, although it's a very important part and a very emotional part. Um, most of the book is really told through these digital communications and probably primarily emails. Um, they make up the bulk of it. Um, what are the kind of challenges of writing an epistolary novel, um, and what are the opportunities? And maybe it's two different questions, so maybe we can go one at a time. But I, I always wonder, um, you know, how does it limit you, and how does it give you great new ideas? One thing that I think was both a challenge and an opportunity is that with digital communications, we spend, at least I spend, a lot of time sort of trying to read between the lines. Yes. Like, what time was this sent? What does that yeah. mean? How much time had passed since I had sent the previous <laughs> email? What is the sign-off? What is the tone, right? So it's a lot of, all of that energy that kind of goes into my own life, and not just with romantic or potentially mm-hmm. romantic correspondence, with with professional correspondence, yes. with, with family correspondence, um, all of it. I got to sort of harness that that kind of thinking but do it for my for my characters and so it was something I noticed really I, I didn't think too much about it until I started doing it and I started thinking about the timestamps because I had to choose mm-hmm. timestamps and it was like well how long would Jade, Jade wait before responding to this mm-hmm. or or would she wait maybe she's in a frame of mind where she she doesn't feel like being preoccupied with how much time has gone by um, would Smith sign his emails differently depending on who he's writing to? Those kind of questions were were fun to fun to think about. 
Um, in terms of challenges, I think, you know, you mentioned the, the Domino's pizza receipts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an example of a solution that took me some time because I needed to find a way to demonstrate that he was depressed mm-hmm. and just sitting alone in his apartment. And it was like, okay, what are, let, let, I, I think I did just a brain dump or something. Like, uh-huh. What are some things that would show that? And and I ended up settling on the the repeat emails from Domino's right. showing that he kept right. ordering pizza. <laughs> Same thing with, um, you know, I, I wanted to show that he was struggling with gambling. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I kind of played around with that and then discovered, well, maybe if he, I show that he's, He's canceled his account and then reactivated right. his account. It shows that sort of, yeah, that tension in his mind between what he wants to do and what he knows he needs to do. You also do this amazing job, well, first of all, of using digital mishaps to drive the story forward um, without giving anything away for people who haven't read the book yet. Um, there is something important that happens because of a digital mishap. And there are just other moments where people clearly send an email before it's finished, send something they didn't mean to say. Um, and I think that just forms an interesting part of the um, plot arc. One of the things you do as well is really imitate the way that corporations send emails. Have you ever worked in corporate marketing? Have you ever drafted those emails professionally? Because you have the voice of these brands down, the voice of these companies that are trying to sort of, um, you know, get consumers' attention. And just, it's a really, really funny uh, part of the book for me. Thank you. Um, No, I haven't. I I do pay a lot of attention to that Mm -hmm. language, though, and... I take it back. I did work in HR for a year. Mm-hmm. And so I, and of course, you know, I have a legal background. So I am, I do feel like I've been trained in, you know, certain ways that you are and are not allowed to speak in certain right, contexts right. and have always found that kind of amusing. So I, maybe that's, you know, kind of gave me an ear for that. Right, right. And I'm sure your legal background gave you some training in some of the kind of, uh, I guess the right word would be like fearful of litigation uh, communications. It probably informed some of your writing totally. there. Yeah, like litigious, the right. kind of people living in litigious society and right. that kind of controlling in this subtle way what right. they're allowed to say. And what is the editing process like for a book like this? I mean, I can say from my end, Mary was um, extremely uh, open to changes that I suggested. But fundamentally, the draft that I read didn't change in a kind of deep way. You know, we probably polished a couple little moments, and I probably had some continuity questions for you to make sure that, you know, if a character was wearing a striped shirt in one scene, that she was wearing it the same day in the next. So obviously, I I know somewhat the answer to this because I worked with you as your editor, um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about what the editing process was like for you as a first-time author. Um, I can say from my side of the desk that you were excellent to work with and very open to changes, but it was also a very polished book by the time it came to me, so we didn't have to do a lot of changes to it. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like? Yeah, it's funny because in preparation for this podcast, I was I looked back on your editorial letter, and 
it uh, it's very much like you describe mm-hmm. but also you asked a question in it about and I don't want to give anything away about the book but you ask a question in it about a, you ask a specific question about the relationship between two characters about the nature of it mm-hmm. at one point and it it gave rise to a change that we made yes. that was small, but I think ultimately really significant um, in kind of bringing the story together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had forgotten that you had asked me that question. And so it was it was interesting to go back and see that that edit didn't just come from my brain. It came from a question <laughs> that you had asked me. I had, I had forgotten right. that. So... You obviously are an incredibly productive person. Um, where do you like to do your writing? Um, what's your process like? Do you sort of spit out a lot of words on paper and then polish them? What's your routine and how do you get it done? So I um, I like to write anywhere I can sort of sprawl out. So sometimes that's my bed mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's more comfortable than the floor, but I can kind of have multiple notebooks open and my computer and my iPad or maybe a poster board with scribble on it. I also, I live on the same block as my library, so I will go there sometimes um, and write. I can, there's a big table I can spread out. It's kind of calming to hear librarians like patiently explain to older people how to use email. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only sound in the room. You know, I'll write wherever I can, but those are, anywhere I can kind of spread out is, is preferable. Um, I have a baby right now, so a lot of times that's not at home. Right. I have to leave home because somehow the baby has taken over the apartment. <laughs> I don't know why the baby gets to stay and I have to leave, but that's what has happened. And do you, speaking of that, um, what kinds of books is he reading? Obviously, I know he's how many months old right he's now? seven months old. He's being read too, <laughs> rather right. than reading, but what does he like to read? So he likes to read board books mm-hmm. because he can eat them. Okay. <laughs> and we also, every Friday, go to library story time, the same library, which is the highlight of my week. And mm. I'm pretty sure it's the highlight of his week too. It's the only time he sees other babies and oh. he seems totally enchanted. Great. So we do that on Fridays at 1030. Oh, great. Is there anything you miss about practicing law? And if the answer is no, um, what about being a lawyer sort of trained you for? And what about your legal education trained you for your writing career? I do not miss practicing law. (laughs) Um, I mean, quite literally, I think it trained me to sit in one place for a long time and just focus. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have this sort of ghost life, like the road not taken. Mm -hmm. I think that might have been law if I hadn't tried it. Mm -hmm. But since I went to law school and tried to be a lawyer and realized it was not right for me, I was able to close that door. And so I don't sort of have this what if. It was a very expensive way of answering that (laughs) question (laughs) that I'm still paying off. But I... I do find that comforting that like I know because that was the other I've I've I'm very interested in law and I'm I think having having actually tried to be a lawyer I can I can feel comfortable having not chosen that path right. at this point. Yeah, and apart from that, writing even on its worst day for all the emotional labor involved and for how frustrating it can be for something not to be clicking the way I wanted mm-hmm. to I still am fulfilled doing it in a way that I wasn't when I was practicing law. Yeah. And I, I, that comparison, I think, is a kind of affirming in a personal way. 
So by the time the book comes out, we'll have put together a list of uh, potential discussion questions for book clubs who are reading when you read this. Um, what are kind of some of the questions that might be on there? Um, do you have ideas about what you think people might want to discuss? Themes? So one of the themes is just how we cope with loss. Absolutely. I think these characters are coping in different ways. Um, and they, they end up helping each other through that. Mm -hmm. and, um, that. That can be an interesting starting point for discussion, Absolutely. I could imagine. Unfortunately, yeah. everyone has experienced loss in some way, shape, in or form. form. And it, you know, it's a part of being alive, so um, I'm sure that people will find a lot to relate to there. Another is the relationship between the sisters. Um, I think oh, yeah. Iris and Jade are... That's probably my favorite relationship in the book. Mm -hmm. I think um, I drew a lot from my own relationship with my son, really close to my sister. She's four years younger. Mm -hmm. And we did not have the same upbringing as Iris and Jade, <laughs> but similar to them, we moved around a lot as kids. And so we were each other's kind of one constant friend right. um, growing up. And so I think that has that has shaped our relationship as adults. Um, and I, I feel like Jade and Iris have a similarly really bonded relationship because of how, how they were each other's best friends growing up. Absolutely. Another theme I think is the just digital communication and how it changes how we relate to each other. Um, do you have a sense, do you think that there's something fundamental in the way, have text messages changed the way our brains thing. I mean, I know you're not a neuroscientist, <laughs> but uh, I mean, sure, it must, right? I feel like it must. I also think it's really interesting. I mean, I met my husband online. I dated online for years before that. Mm -hmm. I know so many people who have met people online. Right. And I think it's really interesting how close you can get to someone without even having met them face to face. Yeah. Um, in, in the case of my husband and me, we, we met in person shortly after we started corresponding, so it wasn't a long time, but I, I know that's not true in a lot of cases. Right. And But there are characters who are doing online dating in this book, and you see some of the messages that are hopeful and some that are creepy and probably um, represent a bunch of the kind of a range of the messages that are out there in the world. Yes. Yeah, for inspiration for some of the online dating app messages yes. in the book was the the fact that my friends and I through especially through our late 20s and early 30s would share my girlfriends and I would mm -hmm. share the the crazier messages right. that we got from people right. <laughs> online right, dating. Right, right. And then another thing I think is different generations interacting. Mm -hmm. So um, the character yeah. Carl is Absolutely. kind of this entitled millennial, but he's also really, he has a huge heart and he's really smart and ambitious. And so he's actually really good at his job, I, I would argue. Absolutely. <laughs> but he, um, you know, he has these, the quirks of the super entitled millennial. <laughs> and, and I think the older generation gets frustrated with that. Absolutely. And as much as Carl... Um, provides really necessary comic relief and can come across as kind of ridiculous. He actually um, 
is a very kind of hopeful, forward-looking guy who wants everyone to be happy, wants to fix things for people. Whether or not he oversteps is a different question, and in fact ends up playing a kind of pivotal role in the book. So those are some really great themes, and I think that book clubs are really going to take to this book and find a lot for discussion in it. Um, it's a short book, but it really packs a punch, and it has so many layers in it um, that I think we can talk about it. You and I can talk about it at length. Lainey can talk about it at length. Um, it certainly caused a lot of conversations in the halls here at Harper, um, and I just I think there's a lot of rich material. And not to put you on the spot with this, but um, I'm sure some people listening to this have already gotten a chance to read your debut novel when you read this. Um, we've been careful for those who haven't, um, not to have too many spoilers, um, but I'm sure people who read and loved the book are eager to know what you're working on now. So now I'm working on my second novel, <laughs> uh, which is titled Privilege, for the moment at least. <laughs> And it is about three women on a university campus in the South over the course of, um, of a semester uh, at the university and, and how the events of that semester unfold in each of their lives. And I can say, uh, based on the selection I've read, it's excellent. And Mary is really going to have a long writing career. And we're so happy to be part of it here at Harper. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary, to talk about your book, When You Read This, which goes on sale February 5th. Um, I know you'll also be doing a tour, and I just want to leave you with something that the author Val Emich, who wrote The Reminders and Dear Evan Hansen, the novel, said, As with Maria Semple's mixed-media masterwork, Where'd You Go, Bernadette?, Atkins' debut novel is so much more than its clever style. I read it briskly with a permanent smile on my face, even when the tears were following. When you read this feels miraculous and leaves a lasting impression long after its final moment. Um, if what we've said today hasn't convinced you to pick it up, I hope that will. Thank you.